Welcome to the Speak As Well As You Think podcast brought to you by Vautier Communications. I'm your host, Jen Alex, and the goal of this show is to uncover communication strategies and behaviors that you can use to improve the way that you show up and perform at work. We'll talk about what effective communication looks like in action so that you can apply it to your own career. If you'd like a written summary of each episode, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter by visiting vautiercommunications.com. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining us again. I know it's early in the year, but I thought it would be a fun exercise for us to look back at this past year in order to look forward at what the year ahead holds. So what I wanted to do is hear about any communication struggles that you have experienced over this last 2023 and think about those things as we start to approach 2024. So John, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, Jen, I'd love to. Common theme. This just isn't 2023, but common theme since I started doing coaching and selling for Vautier and and coaching communication skills throughout all of the experiences I've had has been people who have said, John, if we don't have a formal talk coming up or we're not giving presentations all that often, how do I practice the skills? How do I keep them sharp? How do I continue to build and grow around them? And I love the question because I think it's important. And I realize that everybody doesn't have formal presentations every week. But for the same reason that we don't call this presentation skills coaching anymore, specifically, we badge it now more as communication skills. Everybody has opportunities on a daily basis to communicate. Not everybody has an opportunity on a daily basis to present. And we have several clients who say, I might give a presentation once a month. We have several that say once a quarter, two or three times a year formally. But communicating is different than presenting. And we can communicate formally, of course. We can communicate informally. We can do it personally. We can do it professionally. So I love the idea of encouraging people find opportunities. Yes, of course, in the workplace, there's water cooler talk. There's opportunities in the virtual setting when we're on a Zooms or a team or a WebEx to just communicate back and forth. It's not presenting, but it's sharing your idea, providing a point of view, listening to others. We probably have a lot more opportunities outside of the workplace. I'm going to stop at a local coffee shop that you go to often. When you're checking out at the register or you're working with a barista, ask he or she how their day has been. Ask what they did over the weekend. But very easy, open-ended types of questions like that will elicit more feedback from the person you're opening the questioning to. And those are easy ways to practice communication skills. Look people in the eye, have a smile, use some of the skills that we've talked about in session, but use some of the skills that you know are important to you as well, right? We think about listening, listening actively. Mm-hmm. It's nodding or showing some type of affirmation that you are, in fact, listening to the conversation. Your head's not buried in your phone. You're looking at doing them. The same, yeah, making eye contact with people, but doing the same thing at home. You ask your spouse how, she, how how his or her day went. If you're interacting with your kids, put your phone away and be present and in the moment with your children. Yep. And maybe they're not necessarily communicating back with you. I think about my interactions with Jack. He's 15 months old. He's not speaking words. He's not mm-hmm. making sense to me yet. He's listening. I can understand he's listening. He's doing a lot more pointing now. And when he's asking for something or needs something or wants something, he points to it and that's helpful. But I I do think there is value in finding ways to let the skills that you feel like you want to sharpen, let those exist outside of the business setting or outside the workplace. Yeah, They're easy. They're low stress. They're very low barrier to entry. And it's constant opportunities for us to say, hey, I was able to practice the skills make efforts, 
But if we don't level set on what some of those new changes or traits or behaviors are going to be that we'd like to see change in, and we don't find opportunities to actually practice that change actively, then of course, these skills are going to sit by the wayside. And the old saying that we've all heard before, if you don't lose it, if you don't use it, you lose it. I can understand that there is some value in people saying, John, if I don't use these skills, they're going to feel rusty. Well, of course, just like anything else, if you don't yep. keep up putting on the putting green and you expect the next time you go out and play a round of golf for those putts to drop, it's no wonder why you're not feeling as dialed in on the putting green if you're not going and finding those opportunities to get reps. I was just going to say, yeah, John, I like to tell people when people ask what we do, I don't say we teach executives how to present or we teach people yeah. out there how to get up on stage and present. I say we teach people how to talk because- yep. That really is what we do. It's every setting we focus in a lot of our courses and a lot of what we talk about here on the highest formality setting, which we only do that because we know if if you can do it in that setting that's most formal, yep. when you go and you have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with your spouse, your kids, your friends, or you're in that small group, it's going to be a lot easier to utilize these skills and it's going to be a lot easier to focus on them without getting down on yourself as you would in that most formal setting. So again, yeah, it feels like we're talking about only presenting, only standing up in front of that room and those executives. But in reality, we're teaching people how to talk in their everyday lives in every situation, pretty much. Yep. And if yeah. everyday lives mean that they're giving formal presentations to other executives, then of course, yes, we do that. But in some categories, people will say, John, I don't, that's not my audience. Mm -hmm. What can you help me with? What are you communicating? Who is your audience? Because we can help you with that. That's something that we know based on experience. We've had positive results from teaching people very simple tactics. And again, you've heard me say this. If you've listened to our podcast before, the reason we coach simply is because simple is repeatable. I get it. Complexity moves the needle. Complexity can feel sexy and exciting in that new shiny toy in the room. But if you can do the simple things and you can continue to do those simple things well, huge outcomes are possible. Right. If you can't do the simples or you cannot stick to the basics, it doesn't matter how much of the complex you consume, it's not repeatable. Or it's going to be that much more challenging to become repeatable compared to something that's far more simple. I think that's actually a great point as we think about New Year's resolutions. People set these big lofty goals and they last a month or a couple of weeks and that's it. And the reason for that is because people set a goal that's it's too big to start. So if it's something where you want to lose 30 pounds this year, rather than having that be your goal, set a goal that you are going to do some type of physical activity for five minutes for the first week. And then the next week, maybe you push it to 10 minutes. I think James Clear had a podcast on this about habit forming and starting small. And if you want to work up to being able to meditate for 30 minutes a day, start with working on one to two minutes to start. And then little by little, you add it because those simple habits, those are what's repeatable. That's what helps yeah. you continue to grow. Yeah. And I, I think just listened to a podcast. Sorry to interrupt, Jen. I just listened to a podcast and they were talking about, again, New Year's resolutions and health and wellness or fitness and people who are trying to get themselves to the gym. The small habit that was recommended, commit to driving to the gym every day for hmm. the first week. Wow. You don't have to work out. You don't have to get out of your car. Drive to the gym. But the people that work out at the gym daily have to get to the gym daily. Right. And how do they do that? They drive themselves there. They get themselves there. If you live close enough, sure, walk to the gym. 
You don't have to go in the front doors. You could walk right home. But getting yourself there is the first step. And so the the perspective was really, don't worry about the 30-minute workout, the 60-minute workout. That will come when you commit to getting yourself to to the gym, when you commit to doing the thing, whatever that thing might be. And I thought that was very insightful that it can be such a low barrier of entry in yep. terms of what you're actually doing in that, in that example, they weren't even advising going and working out. If you wanted to go for it, of course, that's a great thing to do when you get there. But at the early initial stages of creating this habit, get yourself to do the easiest thing that you possibly can. And in some cases it might be the hardest thing you possibly can. What's the reason you've been avoiding the gym? Well, I haven't gotten myself there yet. Obviously you can't work out if you don't get to the gym. So perfect example, drive yourself to the gym, get to the parking lot, park your car. If you go inside, great. If you don't, you drive yourself home, do the same thing the next day. Yeah. Almost make it impossible to fail. Yeah. And that comes from a big piece of my background where in kind of that psych piece where it's, it really is we're habitual creatures in nature. So once we start to do something, as long as we stick to it and they do say, like you said, Jen, it's that two to three week mark. If you yeah. can do something consistently for what they call it is, I believe it's 18 to 28 days in a row, your mind is going to form that as a habit. And once you wake up on that 29th day, you're going to feel like you need to do whatever that is. Yep. So John, like you said, it's waking up and it's just driving to the gym. Your mind relating that fact of, okay, I need to go to the gym and building in that one little piece just as that habit just to get started is always that piece that we're looking for. Again, it's yeah. 1% each day. And if that 1% is just making that drive, that's really all we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I got a question for everyone here. Outside of presentation type communication, when you started working in this job, were there any things you noticed about your own communication style outside of work that you started to change or kept the same or just things that you noticed about yourself? I'll start, Colin. I was much more aware of what I was doing physically and vocally. Mm-hmm. And prior prior to, now, for those of you following that don't know our family history, my dad started the business in 04. Our dad, Jen and I's dad, started the business in 2004. He had been part of the industry since the mid-80s. So in Jen and I were born in 1987. We mm-hmm. grew up around this type of awareness. We grew up around the skill set. I was never a good test taker going through all of schooling. So anytime I could, when I got into high school and then thereafter into college, I enjoyed courses that didn't necessarily have tests at midterms or tests at the end of the semester. I would have rather presented. I knew I could hold my own in that, in that, sa- in that space, one, because of my experience around the communication skills. But I don't think I really dialed in on things until I got into the role of mm-hmm. coaching others. And I think I, I've I've coached others. Jen and I both coached swim lessons and swim team. Uh, we both coached basketball at very young levels when we were in high school and then again through college. So coaching wasn't so much a area that we didn't understand or couldn't make sense of, but the awareness around the skill set that we were now coaching and teaching others, that's what what changed the most for me. And being aware of what I was doing with body positioning, being aware of what I was doing with my hands, being aware of how I said certain things or the way I listened to others, all of that awareness became much more top of mind when I made the transition out of corporate America in 2011 and into a a small business space, still working, of course, with corporate America, because we do that 90% of the time. And and I think even more, I've seen additional changes in awareness 
since I've met Lauren, my wife. She's a physical therapist, so she doesn't work in corporate America. She now owns her own practice here in Denver, outpatient. But how physical therapists interact with their mm -hmm. patients is very unique, and there's not a lot of difference in terms of that environment. It's The messaging is different. The location, environment, atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, sure is different. You're in more of a, a doctor's office setting, if you will, versus a boardroom. But it's still important to have eye contact. It's still important to be aware of how you're sharing. Here are my findings from our initial visit, and here's how I feel like you are going to get better through positioning yourself with our care program over the next two or three weeks. Or here's the changes I would like to see you be mindful of between this visit and our next visit coming up in a week from now or two weeks from now. But just because the audience is in corporate and just because Lauren isn't pulling out a PowerPoint presentation to give the directives, if you will, doesn't mean that those physical and vocal skills aren't still present and aren't still overly important in the grand scheme of things. I think it ties into what you were just talking about as one of your biggest struggles too. She's still quote unquote presenting, even though yeah. it looks different. It's not a PowerPoint. It's not in a boardroom, but she's still impacting large groups when she runs those trainings one-on-one -on -one yeah. when she's working with a, a client every single day. So it, it, it is still communicating. It is still communicating for her job and for her practice. Yeah. And influencing and how people hear what she's saying. And I think that's actually the biggest change for me was around the language that I use. So I, my background is in high school education. So in terms of speaking, you can call it presenting. As John mentioned, I've done tons of coaching. I coach CrossFit classes. We both coached swim lessons for little kids, adult swim lessons in college, basketball, all sorts of stuff. So those areas, if you can talk to high school kids, you can talk to anybody because they're ruthless. So I think the biggest thing for me was then moving from that audience of more adolescents into adults. And it's not a huge change, but it was enough of a change where you guys was something I said all the time. And I was just much more conscious of that. I think to John's point too, I've never had an issue with volume. Again, coaching for years of things and then being a high school teacher, if you're not loud enough, those kids will eat you alive. So you've got to make sure that they can hear you and that they listen. But I think being much more aware of what I'm doing physically definitely kicked in as I started to do this every single day. So really for me, it would be both sides, the language that I use, making sure that it fits with an older audience and then around the physically knowing what it is I'm doing and being purposeful with those movements would probably be the biggest changes for me. When you talk about movements, what were some of the things that stuck out first? Yeah. So interestingly enough, when I taught, a lot of it was from like the side or the back of the room. You've got 20 high school kids doing probably 19 things they shouldn't be. So you're constantly kind of looking over them to make sure they're paying attention, they're following along, they're not on cell phones, whatever it is that they might be doing. So I wasn't as used to being front and center as you would think as a presentation or, or giving a talk, running a meeting for an audience. So that was a little bit different. Again, more informal where I do a lot sitting on a desk, leaning against a wall, and for that audience, it worked. That doesn't work as much unless you're having, you know, a, a quick 
Monday morning meeting with your team or something, it's informal, those types of posture or positioning would be totally fine. But I, I just wasn't used to being front and center all that often. So I think that was the biggest change. And then as a teacher, I was always carrying a hundred different things. So my hands were always up. They were holding on to stuff. That transition of bringing my hands from that box that we call it. So somewhere within that mid core down to my sides was certainly a transition. It took a little bit of time to get comfortable there. I don't even think about it now, but I can remember feeling very vulnerable and open when I first started doing that just because I was so used to always having things in my hands. So my arms were always up. And I'm curious, Jen, do you remember a time when you said to yourself, I don't feel vulnerable or uncomfortable in this position anymore? No, I think looking right. back, so I can all of a sudden like just, I know I don't think about it now. It Yeah, it yeah. does. It just happens. There's not this, you know, epiphany moment where you're like, wow, here no. I am. And this is the day. June 8th of 2014 <laughs> was the day. Cause people right. ask me all the time, like, John, when is it going to feel comfortable? feels comfortable when it feels comfortable. I wish yeah. I had an answer for you. I don't. Yeah. And people ask the opposite. When is, when is it going to stop feeling uncomfortable? When it stops. Yep. There isn't a, there isn't a place in time. There isn't a point in time. It's not like to, to Matt's comment earlier, 18 to 28 days from now, set a timer on your phone and that'll right. be the day. I wish it was that concrete and easy, but the more you're aware of it, and this goes back to the point I was making, that awareness piece is what ultimately drives that transition from something feeling odd and out of place to something feeling, wow, very natural. Yep. And you would, you, would, you would hear the same type of feedback from runners who are practicing on cadence. Yep. They start their couch to 5K training or they're training for a half marathon or a marathon, and maybe they get a, a gait analysis. Again, physical therapy talk, but if you go and you you get a gait analysis to check out how is my run running going right now so I can keep myself healthy, you might hear from somebody, everything looks good, but right now your cadence is around 150. That's fine. That's a number. We'd like to see your cadence around 170 to 180. The research shows that at cadence is between 170 and 180. You have a lower, a lower chance of getting injured. So you start to do some cadence training and at first it feels really choppy. You almost think to yourself, hang on a second, I'm not even running. I'm kind of just shuffling and chopping along. But over the course of a three to four week, four to five week, pick a number, pick a range, that starts to change. And before you know it, you say to yourself, wow, I'm running at a 170 cadence. I'm not even thinking about it. And this feels like the new normal. Yep. Most people wouldn't necessarily be able to pinpoint. It happened on that track workout when I was doing 200s or 400 repeats yep. back on six days ago you know, yep. something like that. And it comes yep. back to what you were saying earlier. How often are you practicing it? Mm -hmm. If you only practice it once a month, I can promise you it's going to take you three times as long than somebody that's practicing it for five minutes every day, three times a week. So the and is it purposeful and in, yeah, purposeful and intentional practice, right? I can practice going for a jog to get the mail and then coming back. If I'm not thinking about whatever it is I'm trying to change or the behavior I'm trying to impact or influence, then it's probably not purposeful practice. Mm -hmm. And and that's those are the situations where it's like, are you just going through the motions to check the box to say, oh yeah, I did my my five minutes of Spanish work today? Or did you actually think about, okay, I'm dedicating five minutes to working on my Spanish today because it's day 187 of my process or progress or my journey. And I'm actually thinking about what I'm doing. I'm being intentional behind it or just doing it for the sake of saying, yep, done with that. Yep. Yeah. And I like you guys both bringing up that piece about not really having that awareness of kind of when it comes to that point of proficiency, because 
to answer Colin's question for me, it's I'm, I would say the least seasoned of, of the people on this panel here, just in terms <laughs> of experience wise. The big reason I say that for me is I've been in this role about a year, but prior to this role, I did 18 months in a role that was 95% emails and 100% virtual. So that again, didn't have a lot of speaking. And then prior to that, I had COVID in college. So I had a good three, three and a half years of really not doing a ton of speaking, whether it was formal, informal, or anything in between. So for me, it was that kind of relearning as I came into this and what should things look like? What should things sound like? And trying to kind of connect those dots. As I connected those dots going through, I don't think that I necessarily noticed it. So yeah. your question, what do I notice externally? It's really not as much, but what I will say is, and I just wrote a LinkedIn post about this this morning. I had an interaction last week where somebody said to me about how well and balanced of a speaker I was and talking about kind of the career path that I'm on and, and what I do and how this is kind of something they saw me in. And for me, that was the first time in the last three and a half to four years where I kind of said to myself, okay, I'm definitely using these skills that I've been practicing that we've been walking through throughout those last 12 months. Again, there yeah. was no point where I said, I'm really seeing a big difference in those friend groups or within work because I think in my mind, I, I just got a little bit more comfortable since it's new to me or mm -hmm. didn't feel that sense of comfort since it's new to me. But as I got into it, I, I think that big piece was I heard more of it externally because it, right. again, is new skills to me. It's just this past year. And and I guess there really has been a difference that that I personally haven't seen in my own eyes, but again, we're our own worst critics. So we don't necessarily yep. always see it in ourselves. So, so this was someone else coming to you and saying, wow, you're, you've changed or, or you seem like you've grown into this type of skill set. Yeah. So this was, it was, I want to say two or three days ago, honestly. And it was somebody, a friend that I, I knew a little bit better back when I was a bit younger, probably 12, 13 years old. And we got back together within this past week or two. And that was one of the comments that I got was, Hey, I kind of always knew that you, you were a people person. You love talking to people, but you're very, very well spoken. Now the cadence, the way that you speak, the verbiage, things of that nature, which again, I didn't think that I really changed all that much, but it's just, I go through this each and every day. I, I teach these right. courses, I teach these skills and, and that rubs off and, and I now exhibit a lot of those pieces and even more than I had even thought. Harder to see it from the inside looking out. Exactly. Always is. Jen, what about, what about the two of you? Did you ever get feedback from someone saying, wow, this is a, a difference we see or just meeting up with someone in the family at Thanksgiving and they notice something? That's a great question. I, off the top of my head, I, I don't see it as much in family or friends because they've almost always known me in this role and position, if you will. I've been doing this for this year will be 11 years. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like a lifetime. I will get feedback from people. Actually, I do have one example I'll share in just a second. I do get feedback from clients and people that we work with saying, wow, you're a great speaker and that always feels great. And that just propels me to keep doing what I'm doing and keep honing my own skills to make sure that I am delivering exactly what we're coaching people. I am a walking, talking example of all of that. I will say our sister, 
our younger sister and her coworker run a podcast together on all around education. And they had listened to our podcast for some feedback as, or just ideas as they were getting started. And she said, when I listened to your guys' podcast, I think it was maybe like a 35 minute episode. She said, none of you had a single non-word for that entire 35 minutes. And she said, my coworker and I recorded just a 15 minute, like get used to us talking and just get into the flow of what it might sound like. And we had to cut a ton of non-words. And so I do remember that sticking out as something I guess I just don't use that often, or I I know not to use those non-words when I'm on, I'll call it, whether it's talking with a client or customer in the front of the room, presenting anything in that realm. And would you say, Jen, it's more a product of knowing not to use them or rather talking proactively, knowing what to do to avoid them? Probably more on what to avoid. Yeah. It's, and I, I almost I just think the same talking. thing. It's, yeah, it, it's people ask, John, how, how do you not say non-words? I've been listening to you for a half hour during this podcast or a yep. half hour during today's webinar, or you've been in a, in an in-person setting. We've listened to you since you started at 8 a.m. We're now breaking for lunch and a comment comes up at lunch. John, we haven't heard a single non-word from you in the four hours that you've coached us so far. Yep. How do you do that? I, it's not that I know that they're a bad thing. I know that they're not as effective. Right. So in order to, to not use them, you have to figure out a way to, to be conscious of doing something else. And it might not be adding, it's just eliminating. And in this case, it's addition by subtraction. What I'm adding is a pause. Yep. But knowing the solution, knowing the why, and then knowing, okay, now that I know why they're not effective, what can I do or how can I avoid them? That's really the the perfect level of ingredient base, if you will, to make sure, okay, now I can go back and say, when I feel the urge to throw in a non-word or when I'm not exactly sure how to transition, I'm going to pause and take a breath. You stop. And as soon as that happens and I stop talking and my mouth stops moving, a non-word is not going to come out if my mouth isn't open. Yeah. <laughs> it's an easy fix. But again, these are things tying back to awareness and recognition and being practice. mindful of exactly being mindful of the practice and being mindful of what exactly am I practicing? Yeah. Okay, Matt, let's go to you. What are some of the biggest communication struggles you saw? I think for me, it was going back to starting. Actually, it was 12 months ago today as we are, are recording this. So yeah. one year work anniversary today. But as we look back on that one year thus far, I think for me, it was getting into the shoes of filling that role from a communication sense. So again, being shorter, being a younger guy, being a little bit less experienced, having to, for me, what I would call speak up, which mm -hmm. is something we get from our audiences all the time. It's I'm, I rarely will speak to an audience like this, but how do I, if I have to, or I really don't have to present, but I have a boss that's asking me to go through something like this and I'm looking for those new skills. That's kind of where I started the year at. It's, yeah. I know that there's some skills that I need to work on, that I need to get into in order to build my own sense of confidence in those audiences. And I think that throughout that, probably I would say around that three to six month piece is when I started getting my feet under me. I think this is something we see a ton with other people in our courses as well. It's the nervousness aspect, that lack of confidence, the, I really don't speak all that often. So therefore I don't necessarily know 
how to speak to those groups when I have to. Mm -hmm. What I found for myself was that every room that I walk into, every group of people, 99% of those people are looking at me as a subject matter expert. Right. It, as long as I am not harping on my own faults, my own missed words, my own missed verbiage, odds are my audience is never going to notice a lot of those small mistakes. That helped me kind of settle into my own and feel a bit more comfortable up in front of that room. Yeah. The second piece was somebody saw the fact that I could speak well enough to go through and go through this position. And in general, that helped my mental and my confidence on the back end to say, there is a reason for me to be up in front of this room. I am doing a good enough job to teach people these skills to go through and and to be one of these coaches. Again, I think it was finding that sense of belonging at the front of one of these rooms as finding that biggest struggle. And that's also something we see in a lot of work environments is just, I don't feel like I belong up there. I don't feel like I should be that one talking. How do I go through that? And again, it's just somebody... And most of those people in that room are seeing you as wholly competent. So you seeing yourself as wholly competent is just the other side of that battle. Totally. It's a mind change that you have to, you hear it all the time, fake it till you make it. There's a good piece of that that is true. You would not have been hired for this job if John and I did not think you had the capability to do it. Of course, there's a learning curve as you come on. Early, we did a ton of recording yourself, you would send it to me and or John. We'd watch, we'd give you feedback on vocal skills, on physical skills, on the content itself and how you were flowing through things. So it was a lot of that first three months, that consistent evaluate yourself. You evaluate yourself. We're evaluating you. We're giving you that feedback. And as some of those recordings started to come back where this was awesome, excellent job. I have nothing to share in terms of criticism or anything to do differently. That's when little by little, you start to feel like, okay, I've got it. I can do this. It's taking me a little while. And it is an interesting transition as I start to learn this, but you start to feel more and more confident. And that is one of the reasons that I always encourage people ask for feedback, look for places, ask people, how did that go? What did you really like? What was not your favorite? The more information you have, the better equipped you are to make changes and feel more confident about yourself, the role that you're doing, the job that you have, whatever those things are. Yeah. And I think a, a big piece of it for me was once I realized the benefits of it, I that yeah. was again very early on. It was the first thing that I realized was, okay, there's a million benefits here. And I realized it before I even took that job. But I think once you realize the benefits in the actions that you're taking to grow, which for me, it was going through those videos, going through that self-evaluation. And what I would say is feeling like a participant in a class with myself almost. So mm -hmm. kind of self-teaching some of those, self-reviewing and and being one of those people that I, again, I'll be teaching as I continue to go through this role. But once I opened myself up to that feedback and saw, okay, this really is making a difference. There's a lot of growth that's happening here and it's really all for the better. I think that helped me to actually want to go through and continue with those videos, continue with that practice, continue getting that feedback from my peers, which I think is that hump that a lot of people have trouble getting over. It's- yeah they feel more uncomfortable with the feedback and uncomfortable feeling like they don't know how to do it, that in general, they don't get to that point where they embrace that feedback. And I think that's, yeah. that's a big piece. And we had a and podcast on that. that. 
last year, we talked about getting yourself to that point where don't stop when it feels uncomfortable. You're not quite there yet. Keep pushing through it because otherwise yeah. you're never going to change that habit. Sorry, yeah. John. And it's, yeah, it's okay. It's that idea of, uh, we hear it all the time. People say, well, I'm just not ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to give that type of talk yet. I'm not ready to be in front of this big of an audience yet. When will you be ready? Mm -hmm. Time is never going to come. And, and you'll, you'll find yourself continuing to say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Part of confidence is not it, the, the difference between confidence and arrogance. Confidence is the people who aren't afraid of failing. They're yeah. not afraid of misstepping. They're not afraid of learning from something, from an experience, but you've got to be brave enough to at least put yourself out there to say, I tried the thing, whatever that may have been. If it goes well, great. If it doesn't go well, all you now have is data. Yeah. All you've got is something that you can look at objectively and say, okay, here's what I did. Here's what worked well. Here's what may have not worked exactly as planned or how I, how I expected it to, but I'm able to use this now going forward. And I took the first step. And for most people, that first step is the hardest step. It doesn't matter what they're stepping into or, or trying to get towards, but it's this constant realization of I'm not ready is typically what cripples people. Yeah. And it's this idea of find action, find an opportunity to act on something. But to Matt's point, I mean, the reason Matt's here right now is because Matt opened up dialogue with Jen and myself after going through a course. And I've always loved the quote, closed mouths don't get fed. That mm -hmm. means we would not have proactively reached out to Matt. We worked with 36 people who went through with Matt, all great people. I would, I, I, and I'll say this honestly to Matt, I would not have thought coming out of that program. All right, Matthew Nazer, I've got to get back in touch with him. But the fact that Matt reached out to us and said, yeah. Hey, I had a great experience with this. Do you have 15 minutes for a call? I think back to my experience getting into corporate America. I'll share a story here that I've told countless times to others. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving 2009, I go from Illinois State, Bloomington Normal, up to Benton Harbor, Michigan, where I'm interviewing for a job at Whirlpool, and their headquarters is in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Their interview was a, a two-day interview, if you will. It was a night that we had dinner, so that was part one of the interview process, really looking at interaction, social skills, how do you operate in a social forum, if you will, before the following day, a full day of formal interviews, the, the normal interview process that many people would be accustomed to. First night, everything goes well. The dinner is great. Have fun with meeting some of the people who I'm going to be interviewing with the next day, meeting some of the Whirlpool folks who are part of the interview panel and then part of the, the team that I was about to be joining this sales development role. Wake up the next morning, have breakfast, go to my suit bag where my suit <laughs> is supposed to be. I had dry cleaned my suit in preparation for the interview. I had taken my suit out of the dry cleaning bag and I had put my pea coats, my jacket in November in Michigan, it's cold, put my jacket in my suit bag. No idea why I did that. So I think to myself, okay, my suit's got to be in the car. It's in the trunk. Run downstairs in my shorts and t-shirt outside, middle of November, check the back seat and check the trunk, no suit. Thinking, shoot, I got the wrong bag. So I remember specifically calling my dad and saying, I know the parameters for this interview is suit and tie. It's formal attire. I said, dad, is it even worth me going to the interview now on the day of formal interviews without the bare minimum requirement to show up in a suit and a tie? He said, you have nothing to lose. There's no reason why you shouldn't go. You've already done the first night of it. Make a comment to the hiring manager right when you get there, just about the fact that you realize you're not dressed like everybody else and leave it at that. Don't bring it up the rest of the day. 
go through, get the reps. At the very least, it's experience. Practice, You'll come yep. back. If, if you don't get the job, you don't get the job. There will be other jobs out there. But there's no reason for you to not show up. There's no reason for you not to go. If you don't go, you know the answer is going to be no. They're not going to reach out to you and say, hey, I know you didn't show up to this interview, but we'd still like to offer you the position. <laughs> so I go through the entire day process, go through the interview, leave. I remember calling my mom and dad on the way home. And they asked how it was. And I said, I think it went well. I think everything went according to plan, minus the fact that I didn't have the proper attire. I said, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what comes of it. I'm not expecting the role because everybody else who was interviewing the, for the job that day showed up with a suit and tie, <laughs> male or female, and I didn't. And sure enough, Black Wednesday or whatever you call it, the day before Thanksgiving Day, I get the call from the hiring manager offering me the position. And I said, I'm just curious. I didn't have what everyone else was was wearing and I didn't have what was noted as a requirement. And they said, John, we were less concerned about your attire. What impressed us more was your ability to answer the questions, give the presentation at the end of the, the formal panel process. All of those things were what we were judging on and making decisions based off of not necessarily what you were wearing. You didn't show up in a clown suit. So you, <laughs> whatever you wore that day was enough to say, okay, that's not a big deal. But again, closed mouths don't get fed. Had I not shown up to that second day of the formal interview, I knew what the answer would have been. It would have been, I'm looking for another job. Yep. Yeah, I think and that's a great example. Yeah, and it's really good timing too, because I, as I said, I hit publish on a LinkedIn post at about 12.58 local time before we started this at one o'clock. And it was right along the lines of what we're talking about right now. And I actually mentioned it was about starting the new year and kind of finding your niche, which is something something that I was able to do in 2023, thanks to kind of this role and all of those other things. And one of those things I mentioned was that I came in because I asked the right questions to get yeah. my foot in the door and just never turned around. I didn't have any prior education. I had no prior experience, but once I was able to kind of get in that first meeting, I said, not going to give this up because again, it's not really an experience or an opportunity that I would get any other way than asking those questions and, and reaching out. So while I am extremely thankful to you all for that opportunity, I am very, very glad with myself for having asked those questions and, and you know, kicking open some of those doors that otherwise I, I never would have known about. So yep. awesome. Just to follow up with my biggest communication struggle over the last year, it really comes down to, I'm going to use the word convincing for a lack of better word, but trying to convince more technical groups that what they do with themselves, so their physical skills and how they say what they're saying, their vocal skills actually impact and do matter to their audience. I have worked with a number of different groups that might be more scientist-based, more IT folks, more very technical groups that work in depth with a lot of detail. And a piece of feedback that I get quite often is my audience doesn't care what I do or what I sound like. They are only interested in the information I am there to share. And I don't want to downplay that. The information that you are there to share is vitally important. But I will always tell groups do you want to get up in the front of the room and listen to a Ferris Bueller teacher walk you through that information? Or do you want to get up and listen to somebody like a Simon Sinek walk you through that information? The way in which it's delivered impacts what you end up taking away or retaining from that information. And so while some audiences, the, the main focus might not be 
how I'm standing, what I'm doing with my hands, what volume I'm speaking at, all of those things are still important and they definitely still matter no matter who you're talking to and what you're talking about. And Jen, to add to that, I, I know that some of those people you're calling out there are some of those STEM personnel. Yes. And again, I have that heavy STEM background. I have a friend right now getting a PhD and we have this conversation, I think, weekly. She's going through, she has a lot of grants that she's applying for and presentations that she's going through based off of her thesis and all of these other things. And what I say is, hey, if you ever need some help with any of those presentations, just you know, let me know. I'll give you some of those tips, et cetera. And that's always her answer is, well, I don't think it's really about how I say it. I think it's more yeah. about what I'm saying. And <laughs> it's great that I didn't even tell you to say that there. That's <laughs> that's kind of what you come back with. But all in all, for me, I, I want to tell all of our STEM personnel out there that remember back to when you were in college, back to when you were in high school, when you were taking those biology labs, those chem labs, anything that you had to do a presentation for, I promise you, if you were to look back at one of those rubrics, there is a 10-point section based off of how you are presenting, yep. whether it delivery. is your formality, your delivery, yep. your tone, your medium, whatever it may be, that was a full letter grade. We have yeah. to think about that the same way now in that business sense. That should be a full letter grade of how you're grading yourself now. So again, and you I, want to think about your volume. You want to think about your hand gestures and all of these other things because they really, really do matter. Yeah. Yeah. I would challenge any of the population out there that says to themselves, my audience doesn't care about how I deliver the information. They just care about the information. Has your audience told you that? Or is that just something you think internally? Right. <laughs> if your audience has told you, hey, John, I don't care what you're doing physically and vocally, just give me the information. Would love to hear from you because I'm very interested in that type of, of interaction. But in most cases, those are people that just think their audience doesn't care about those things. Yeah. And going back to what Matt and Jen just said, I can promise you an audience will want to make sure they're being in a situation where the speaker is providing information in an insightful way, an exciting way. But a lot of that, those intangibles that we talk about all the time come from how you say what you're saying, not just the message and the content. And I actually have a great example of this from John and I. Our little sister was a kindergarten teacher for years, and she asked the two of us to come in and be the the guest readers to the kindergarten class that day. And she wanted to introduce all of her kids to her big brother and sister. So we go in and John's going to read first. And again, you've got at this point, she probably had 28 kindergartners sitting on the carpet in front of us. And we're in these tiny, tiny chairs. John's falling all out of it. And he's going to read first. And to us, the kids are here to hear a story. That's what they want. So John starts reading it, and his head is obviously in the book. He doesn't have it held up to the kids to look at. His volume's just a natural reading tone. And I stopped him real quick, and I said, hey, you got to like show him the pictures and like make it interesting and inflection and all of the stuff that we talk about. But... It, Otherwise, they're not going to pay attention. And that's exactly it's nap time. <laughs> exactly. And that's a great way of thinking of it. Yes, they were there to hear a story. But had John delivered it the way he had started and not changed the tone and the pace and that edge of excitement for them, they would have been tuned out in the first three minutes of listening to him. So again, just another way of thinking about it. Yes, they were there for the story. 
but the way he delivers it absolutely impacts how long do they listen and how much attention are they paying to him? Uh, A helpful takeaway for some of our listeners. It's important to think about what you want to say. It's equally as important to think about what do I want my audience to hear? Yeah. And there's a difference between those two things. I think so many people focus on the content that they are trying to share. Ask yourself from the other side of the room, what do I want my audience to leave with or take away? What do I want them to hear from me? Yes, they can be similar, but in a lot of cases that will help you do a little bit of investigation to say, okay, this is the most important part of my message. This is how I want to share or deliver the most important part of my message because here's how I want my audience to consume it or hear it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you again for joining us back in 2024. And we will have more content coming at you. As always, if there's anything you are interested in hearing about, please shoot us an email. We would love to get that on a future podcast episode. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Speak As Well As You Think podcast brought to you by Vautier Communications. Again, I am your host, Jen Alex. Vautier Communications is in the business of business communication skills. We coach and train both individuals and groups on how to elevate their presence and increase their impact through the way they communicate, present, and write. If you want to learn more about our in-person or virtual training options, visit our website at www.vautiercommunications.com. Thanks for listening.